So I would like to encourage you, if you would, to open your Bibles. And if you didn't bring a Bible of your own, you're welcome to grab one out of a seat near you, or you can get your cell phone. Our Wi-Fi password is Jesus Loves You, all one word, all lowercase. And uh, you could get the uh, Bible app and follow along there. There's actually an event. If you click the menu in the Bible app and look for an event near you, uh, the content of Scripture and some notes will be on your phone for you there. So that's kind of a great way to follow along if you would like to do so. As I mentioned earlier, we are continuing a series today, a series that addresses lies that even seasoned Christians seem to believe. Remember the first lie was you are alone. We talked about how if you believe that lie, you're alone. It can really drag you to dark places. And the truth is you're never alone. If the spirit of God is present with you, even in the valley of the shadow of death. I was speaking to someone who's in that valley this week and, and they just, I said, do you feel like God has let you down? And, and they said, yeah. And I said, he hasn't. That's the lie. You're not alone. He is with you. And that's a lie that even a seasoned Christian can believe. And you must not allow yourself to believe that. Not only is the spirit of God always present with you, but his his family of believers is there sometimes when you don't even recognize that they're there. They are there. Remember the second lie that we talked about was I'm useless. I have messed up my life so bad, so bad that there's no way God could ever use me. Hear this. The enemy of your soul will tell you that all the time. He is relentless, relentless in his communication of that lie. But the lover of your soul, Jesus, is even more relentless in saying, don't call anything useless that I purchased with my blood. So don't believe the lie. Don't believe these lies. The lie I want to talk to you about today is a lie that was expressed by one of my favorite musicians, a guy named Billy Joel. Do you remember Billy Joel? Boy, he had it all, musical talent. By the way, his best song is not a piano song, it's a guitar song. And I can talk to you about that later if you need to know, okay? Poor Andy, he's gonna be just going through his Billy Joel repertoire saying, which one, which one? But the song that uh, expresses the lie we're talking about today is a song called My Life. Do you remember that song? I don't care what you say anymore, this is my life. Do you see why I preach instead of sing? This is my life. Go ahead with your own life. Leave me alone. That's a lie. It's a lie that sometimes even seasoned Christians can believe. Back in 1993, there was a commercial. It was a Nike commercial. And it featured um, Charles Barkley, who is a basketball player, retired now. But at the time, he was not retired. In that commercial, Barkley said these words. He said, I am not a role model. I am not paid to be a role model. I am paid to wreak havoc on the basketball court. Parents should be role models. Just because I dunk a basketball doesn't mean I should raise your kids. (laughs) That was Barkley. Never one to fail to be outspoken about certain issues, right? In a sense, I kind of love that he called out parents in that. Like, hey, don't expect me to raise your kids. That's your job. Because parents do need to take that responsibility. But not everyone agrees that athletes can choose to not be role models. In fact, 20 years later, after that television commercial had aired, a 20-something-year-old named Tim Tebow was playing in the NFL. And Tebow was asked, what do you think about athletes who insist they're not role models? And Tebow said these words. He said, yes, you are a role model. You're just not a good one. (laughs) Yeah. Now, you and I could debate the questions of celebrity role modeling all we wanted to, But there's something about which we would probably almost certainly agree, and that is this. Whenever you are visible to others, 
They can see you, hear you. Then you have the potential to be an influence for good or for bad, just because they can see you or hear you. You have that potential. It's just part of the human condition. In fact, the only way to prevent that reality from being part of your life is to say, I'm going to be a hermit. And right now I'm going down to my house and I'm packing up the, what, what I need and I'm going to go live in a cave for the rest of my life. But even in that action of hermiting, <laughs> I am influencing people by my leaving and then by my actions. You don't have an option as to whether you're an, an influence. For good or bad, you can deny it, but you can't avoid it. And so I would say to you that for many reasons, how you live your life matters. What you do matters, good things and bad things. And what you don't do matters. If you don't do bad things, that matters. If you do do good things, that matters. And vice versa, you can switch all those words around. And the last two words of every one of those sentences, that matters. How you live your life matters. It matters to you. It matters in forming you into the person you are. The decisions you're making today influence who you will be tomorrow. You have that control in many respects. Abe Lincoln is said to have said, and it's, you know, historians like to say, I don't remember him saying there, like they were present or something, you know, I don't remember him saying that. But he is said to have said this sentence, most people are about as happy as they have made up their minds to be, right? And as Lincoln says that, here's, here's what I hear in that. I, I hear that the choices I am making are probably the most fundamental, fundamental factor in how my life will be and whether I'll be happy. It's not the choices that my mom's making, not the choices that my teachers are making, not the choices that my boss or my president or anyone else is making. It's my choices that are the most fundamental factor in how my life is going to turn out. And the Bible says that actually the way you live doesn't just matter to you, it matters to God. He's interested in the way you live. He gives you your life as a gift. That's a blessing. And then he sends Jesus to die on the cross to redeem you from your sin and guilt. That's a blessing. And then he offers to you the gift of eternal life that when you turn from your sin, trusting in Jesus' death to transform your heart, he puts a new heart within you. And the heart of stone is gone and a heart of flesh beats in you, spiritually speaking. That's a blessing. And then he places his Holy Spirit inside of you. The Spirit of God himself, co-equal with the Father and Son, comes and lives inside of you. Oh, that's a blessing. All of those blessings, they come with responsibility. That's the truth of life, that blessings come with responsibility. And that's one of the reasons how you live matters to God. Because the Bible says in Romans 14, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. He's interested in how you're living your life. It says we must all appear, in 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Huh. How I live matters to God. We kind of know these first two things. Yeah, I know how I live matters to me, and I know how I live. I know God's interested in that. I think we tend to overlook the third one, and that is the way you live matters to others. 
Whether you live well or poorly, it will affect your children, your church family, your friends, your grandchildren, even the very kingdom of God is influenced by the way you live your life. And one place you see that is a passage that I asked you to open to earlier, Esther chapter four. Did I ask you to open that? I usually give you a page number when I do that. Esther four is on page 491 in the uh, Bibles that are in the pew, and I'd love you to follow along as I read. Esther chapter four is where we're gonna be in a moment. 491. Before we read the text though, let me kind of set this up, okay? Because we could read all the chapters of Esther and then you'd have the whole story, or I can give you the, the encapsulated version of the first couple chapters. So let me do that, okay? Esther is a woman who, because of her beauty, has been made the queen of Persia. Now I'm saying because of her beauty, but that doesn't mean it's how pretty you are and not how smart you are that gets you ahead in life, although sometimes that seems to be the case. I would add it was also because of God's sovereign hand that she came here to be the queen of Persia. And you're going to see that as the story unfolds in a few moments. She was Jewish, so she was a foreigner in that land, but she didn't let anybody know that she was Jewish because those people were in captivity. So here she is, she's a foreigner, and, 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 and the, the, the queen in Persia, she does some bad stuff, and so she gets kicked out. They look for a new one, they find this pretty girl, Esther, and the king says, yeah, that can be the new queen, that sounds great. She's this Jewish girl who's actually, she's been raised for some reason by her cousin, whose name is Mordecai. He's evidently older than her. He took her in. He'd been taking care of her until she was actually placed uh, in the king's court uh, there as a queen. Something happened with her cousin Mordecai that he offended someone. And as a result, that someone whose name was Haman went to the king and said, hey, I'd kind of like to give some money uh, to take care of a problem in the kingdom. We need to kill all the Jews. And the king said, yeah, whatever you want. That sounds good to me. I'll, I'll pronounce an edict. So it's kind of like Hitler but it's thousands of years before Hitler. We need to kill all the Jews. Well, Esther's a Jew, Mordecai's a Jew. This is not gonna be a good thing, but here's this edict that's been put into place. And you gotta know, when the king of Persia says, this, this is law, there's no revoking it. There was no way to repeal that. It was law. So our story begins with this, with Mordecai having heard that the king had issued this edict for the extermination of the Jewish people. And look at verse one. This is Esther chapter four, verse one. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one who is clothed in sackcloth is allowed to enter it. Now, sackcloth, you understand, that was an outward expression of an inward brokenness. My heart is broken that my people are going to be killed. The king doesn't want to see anybody dressed like that. You're not allowed in. You stay out there. Verse 3. In every province... To which the, I'm sorry, in every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So there's been this edict for the extermination, the annihilation of the Jews. And Esther's cousin is deeply grieved with every other Jew about this. So Esther hears that Mordecai is grieved and so she sends her messenger, whose name is Hattik. That's an early form of Thatchik, I think. Okay. Hathak, Hathak is what it is, okay? To Mordecai to find out what's happening. Skip down to verse seven, okay? So it says, Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susha to show to Esther to explain it and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her, now catch this, to go into the king's presence and beg for mercy and plead for him and for her people. You get it, Esther? 
You have a position. You're the queen. Go talk to the king and get this thing reversed because we will die if you don't do this. Now, if you look at verse 11, you see Esther's response. These are the words that she sends back to Mordecai. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law that they're to be put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. You get what she's saying, right? She's saying, I can't just go in and see the king any old time. Even though I'm the queen, I can't do that. It's against the rules. In fact, if you're not invited in there, the automatic response is kill her. She was not invited unless the king happens to graciously extend the royal scepter to me. Now I want to move to verse 12. It's the next verse. And I want to say, this is really the key passage for what I want to say to you today. It's the key teaching in verses 12, 13, and 14. So follow along as I read this part. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, deliverance, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Wow, aren't you dying to know how this turns out? I'll let you read it when you go home, okay? We're gonna, we're gonna stop right there, okay? <laughs> Now, as you think of what we just read, I'm sure you can imagine how Esther feels. She has a problem that's pretty extraordinary, but it's kind of common to us. And the problem is that God tends to call people to do difficult things, and we tend to resist that calling. And, and, and I've said it myself, we use this phrase sometimes. We say something like, God's calling me out of my comfort zone, you know? Hey, we, we need someone to teach the sixth grade Sunday school class. Well, I've never done that. I feel like it's really hard but God's calling me out of my comfort zone. I I say that occasionally. But hear this. (laughs) Mordecai's instruction to Esther wasn't a matter of making her uncomfortable. He was telling her to be willing to give her very life and to be willing to risk it. So when I hear myself saying, I don't know if I'm really comfortable doing that, God, (laughs) I hope Esther's not listening. Because Queen Esther, if she's looking down listening to that, She's probably like, wow, that guy is so pathetic, <laughs> you know? How, how can he, how can he, wow. And I see that we really resist God's leading with some pretty sorry excuses. In fact, let's put some of our excuses into Queen Esther's mouth for a minute here. Well, Mordecai, I can't do that. I have some pretty big responsibilities. I mean, the death of the Jews is one thing, but I'm the queen for crying out loud, and I have a lot of queen stuff I need to do. Ha, Really? Or how about this one? Mordecai, I don't want to do this. It's so boring. I've been in there so many times. I mean, I'm one of the king's favorites. I'm the queen, you know. And I think I'll die if I ever have to go in there again. It's getting old. Oh, yeah. How about that? But this is probably my favorite because it fits with this lie. Mordecai, I can't believe you're suggesting I do this. God loves me. I would never ask anyone that I love to do the kind of thing you're suggesting that I do. So I don't think God would ask me to do something this hard because he wants me to be happy, Mordecai. I sometimes wonder how often excuses like this comes from our heart because we feel that our life is our own. 
that we own our life. That's what Billy Joel said. I don't care what you say anymore. This is my life. I would say that people maybe who don't know Jesus or maybe just recently came to know Jesus would naturally feel that way, that their life is their own. Because the idea of being accountable to God regarding your life is got to be foreign to someone who doesn't know God personally. But I want to say to you, I think it's something that can even happen to Christians who've been around a while. Even seasoned Christians can believe the lie that their life is their own. Now for me, I think that belief that I don't really have to do this, God will take care of this, kind of came from reading this passage wrong in my younger years. So what I'd like to do is kind of do a careful reading of just two verses in this passage. I think that overcoming this lie really requires understanding this text correctly. Mordecai has written to Esther after hearing that she's resisting doing what he believes need to be done. And the Bible says, well, look at verse 13. Look at it again. We're going to look at this many times today. He sends back the answer, do you not, I'm sorry, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Hear what he's saying. Esther, if you don't do this, here's what's going to happen. He's just kind of laying it out that way. Sometimes when I hear people talk about God asking them to do things that they are struggling with resistance regarding, you, you hear words like this. Well, you know, God will get this done with or without us. And then we kind of add these words. If we don't obey, then we'll forfeit the blessing of serving. Have you heard that before? I think God wants me to do this, but I'm really not going to do this. You know, he'll get it done with or without me. I'll just, I'll just forfeit the, the blessing of serving. And maybe Willis and Wilma are having that conversation, you know? And, and, and Willis says, hey, you know, I was thinking maybe we could help out with that living bread ministry. I wonder if they need helpers with that. And, and Wilma says, you know what, I, I'm really busy. I really don't want to do that. And Willis responds, okay, yeah, I guess we don't have to. God will get it done. We'll just have to forfeit the reward that comes with serving. And sometimes we say it almost with the tone of a martyr. I would really like to do that, but I'm so busy. I'll just have to forfeit the reward of serving, really. <laughs> you know what I'm, I'm really afraid is happening? It's something you might think of as the sin of presumption. The sin of presumption where you say, I'm going to say no to God because I'm kind of presuming that he can go ahead and take care of this. And whether I say yes or no is irrelevant. I have a sin of presumption. And while that may not be the case, I feel often it is the case when we do that. And by the way, that's not exactly what the Bible is saying here in Esther. Look at the text again. Look at verse 14. It says that if Esther doesn't act, relief and deliverance will come from another place. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will rise from another place. But the rest of the text doesn't say, and you'll forfeit the blessing. It's way worse than that. It's way worse than that. Read it in verse 13. He sent back his answer. Don't think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. Esther, don't think that you're exempt from this edict. Bad things are going to happen. And then in the middle of verse 14, he says, you and your father's family will perish. So what I feel like this is saying is that there is a cost 
involved in ignoring God's voice. And the cost may be more than just missing out on the blessing. (laughs) It might be a cost to those people directly involved in a situation God's asking you to address. It may be a cost to those who are around you and observing you. Because remember, you may want to say, I'm not a role model, but you are a role model. It may be a cost to you personally. It would have been a cost to Esther (laughs) that was higher than just the joy of missing out on the blessing. So what do you do? I mean, what do you do when you yourself feel this struggle of resistance? Let me try to give you a few pointers. One of the things to do would be to give some thought to the source of the resistance. Why? Why? If I feel like God wants me to do this, why am I resisting it? And, and it might be because of the previous lie from last week. It might be all that lie of uselessness is creeping up. You can't do this. You're no good. You can't do that. Now, there's no evidence that Queen Esther felt that way, but we may struggle with that. And if you do, I would encourage you to just go online, click on a podcast, and go listen to that, that podcast again. Am I really useless? And then ask God to forgive you for believing that lie and move forward knowing that you serve a God who specializes in making that which would be useless incredibly useful. That specialization is called redemption. And he does that all the time. What is the source of your resistance? Is it that you feel useless? Is it the sin of presumption? Well, you know, I know God wants me to do that, but someone someone else will get that. I presume that someone else will get that. How would you respond if every time you ask ask a friend of yours to help you out, if that friend says, well, I don't really want to. I'm sure you can find someone else to help you. What would be your response to that? My guess is a couple things would happen. Number one, you would stop asking that friend to help you out because every time they presume you can find help somewhere else. And I would guess number two, you would find some new friends. You see, if you're dealing with the sin of presumption, you need to confess that to God and repent of it. And embrace what God asks you to embrace. What is it that is the source of your resistance? Ask yourself that. Ask God to show it to you. Is it just simple disobedience? Are you like the Billy Joel thing? I don't care what you say anymore. This is my life. Go ahead with your own life. Leave me alone. If you're a Christian, it's not your life. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Do you know what that price is? You're going to hold it in your hand in a few moments. The body of Christ at communion. The blood of Christ at communion. How'd that old song go? I am redeemed, but not with silver. I am bought, but not with gold, but with a price. The blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. I'm not my own. Give some thought. What is the source of your resistance? And, And along that way, let me just say this too. Be sure that the voice you're hearing is from God. I'm not really sure I know how Esther knew that what Mordecai was saying was from God, except to say, evidently, the Spirit of God spoke to her heart and said, your cousin's right. Your cousin's right. Because sometimes you can hear a sermon like this, and you can say, oh, all that stuff that needs done, now I got to do it. And you can just begin to do things, not because you feel like God is telling you to do them, but rather because you feel guilt that they're not being done. And I have to tell you that guilt can indeed sometimes get you started in a ministry, but guilt is a lousy sustainer. Do you understand that? And so it can't be that guilt is moving you to do this. It has to be the voice of the Spirit of God who is speaking to you. 
So you'll need to say, God, is this you? Or is this just my crazy cousin Mordecai? I don't know, you know? Is it you? And I can tell you, when you ask God, tell me, is this what you want to do? He never puts his hand on his hip and says, well, if you don't know, I'm not going to tell you. He's not going to do that. When you go to him, if you seek me, you will find me, he says, when you seek me with all your heart. So look and say, God, is this you speaking to me? And he'll answer. And, And then go ahead and move forward with what he is telling you to do. Esther walked right into the king's presence. In fact, let's read a couple extra verses. We ended at verse 14. Look at verse 15. It says, Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go into the king, even though it's against the law. And catch this phrase. If I perish, I perish. She obeyed the law. Even though she wasn't sure she'd live, she obeyed. She obeyed. She's an awesome role model, isn't she? She really is. She is someone who decided not to believe that her life was her own. And I'm going to go ahead and spoil the book for you. It turns out well. It turns out well. You ever heard of the butterfly effect? How many have heard of the butterfly effect? Put your hands up. Who can explain it? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> it's chaos theory. And who knows what that is, right? The only thing I know about chaos is that's who um, Maxwell Smart was always against, right? The agents of chaos. Right? Yeah. And chaos, too, when describe what my office looks like most of the time. The butterfly effect, in its simplest explanation, an explanation that I can even understand, um, it asserts that the smallest activity in one place can have an unforeseen impact in another. So you can have a butterfly who maybe is in Santiago, Chile, and it's on one flower and it goes like a butterfly does and goes over the other one. And in that flapping of those wings, the breeze that that created makes it rain in Galveston, Texas. Okay? It's kind of a cause and effect thing. You know, like this did this, did this, did this, did this. I'm not sure I buy it. Smarter people than I do Smarter people than I am, they buy it. I don't know that I do. And I can tell you why, my philosophy on that later if you want to know it privately. But here's what I do buy. Here's what I believe with all my heart. That if you obey God's leading, it can have a butterfly effect. It can have an unforeseen impact in places and on people you may not have expected. I guarantee you the evangelist who led Harry Taylor to faith in Christ did not know that Harry would lead Sammy Dagger to faith in Christ and Sammy Dagger would one day speak at Billy Graham's funeral service. There's no way he could have foreseen those circumstances. But I can say this, when you obey God's leading, it will have unforeseen impact in places and on people you might not have expected. And number two, if you disobey God's leading, that can have unforeseen impact in places, and on people you might not have expected. And that unforeseen impact, that's the wild card. That's the wild card. That's the the thing, like, I don't know what that is. And that's what makes this lie so dangerous to us, is that we just don't know how that's going to end up. And so as you come to the communion table today, I want to remind you that as a Christian, your life is not your own. And I want to say to you, that there are certain things in this world that God has for you to do. 
and you're just the right person to do that. When the bread and the cup will be passed in a moment, you can take that opportunity and say, God, have I been believing this lie? Yes, let somebody else do it. And if you have, then as you're holding the bread, take that moment in quietness and just say, God, forgive me for believing that lie. Show me what you want me to do. And then as the cup comes a few moments later, take that time and say, God, what is it you have for me to do? Help me understand it. Speak to my heart. Don't believe the lie. Embrace the truth. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price.